Luke chapter 1, and I'm going to start reading in verse 13 and read down through verse 17. But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard. Thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. Thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth. For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. And he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. Many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So the title of this this morning, Where Are the Men? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the opportunity and privilege that we have to open your precious word today. We thank you, Father, for this day that is set aside to honor fathers. And I pray, Father, you'd help us as we look into the word of God today to allow you to search our hearts, to challenge us, to encourage us, particularly as men, as to the responsibility and the privilege that we have to lead, to protect, and to raise up another generation that will serve the Lord and have an impact upon the future. So Lord, just help us, encourage us, help us to see the importance and the privilege we have the responsibility is ours. We do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, one of the things that's under attack and has been for some time in our world is patriarchy. Now, what is patriarchy? It's male leadership, basically. That the male or the man is the dominant has the dominant role in society, is to take the leadership. You'll see things like this. This is a title of an article. Quote, Renowned therapist explains the crushing effects of patriarchy in men and women today. Unquote. That's the title of an article. But the facts prove otherwise. Uh, According to the U.S. Census Bureau, 2010, an estimated 24.7 million children, that's 33% of children in the U.S., live absent their biological father. An estimated of students in grades 1 through 12, 39% live in homes absent their biological fathers. And according to, quote, what can the federal government do to increase decrease crime, invite revitalized communities, unquote, from the U.S. Justice Department, children from fatherless homes account for 63% of youth suicides, 90% of all homeless and runaway youths, 85% of children that exhibit behavioral disorders, 71% of all high school dropouts, 70% of juveniles in state-operated institutions, 75% of adolescent patients in substance abuse centers, and 75% of rapists motivated by displaced anger. 
In an article entitled The Importance of Dads in an Increasingly Fatherless America, the Heritage Foundation, June 15, 2018, said this, quote, from, free, from education to personal health to career success, children who lack a father find themselves at a disadvantage to their peers raised in a two-parent household, unquote. 2017 Heritage Foundation article reported that, quote, routine family bonding activities like reading bedtime stories, eating meals together, have a profound effect on children's educational development and psychological well-being, unquote. Simply put, dads, we need you, unquote. Somebody has said, quote, a good father is one of the most unsung, unpraised, unnoticed, and yet one of the most valuable assets in our society. Unquote. You see, we need fathers. We need fathers. The sad thing is, in our world today, you know, it kind of reminds me a lot like Moab. There's a seduction of men. One of the goals of communist takeover is to feminize the men. If you're going to take over a nation, you've got to feminize the men. There's a document found in 1918 during World War I, close to the end of World War I, outlining some, some, some things that need to happen for, for communism to take over a country. And one of them was you masculinize the women and feminize the men. Isn't that what we see in our world today? In fact, you know, our world could be described by Isaiah chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, and we're seeing this become more and more prominent in our, own, in our nation. Isaiah chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, and this was happening in Israel, where he says, Isaiah 3, 4, And I will give children to be their princes, and babes shall rule over them. When you're walking through Walmart and you see a, a mom or a dad with some kids, who's running the roost? It's not hard to figure out many times. The little kid is. Verse 5, And the people shall be oppressed, every one by another, and every one by his neighbor. The child shall behave himself proudly against the ancient and the base against the honorable. In verse 12, he says, As for my people, children are their oppressors, and women rule over them. O my people, they which lead thee cause thee there, and destroy the way of thy paths. See, a lot of men are selling out today for gratification of their lusts, just like the men of Israel did with the women of Moab. Feminism is the war cry, and there's a world, our world is at war against man leadership. But the Bible still says in Ephesians 5.23, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is of the church. And he is the savior of the body. So this morning I want to look from this passage, some characteristics of John the Baptist, that I think that we need to understand as men. What men of God are. Or qualifications we're looking for. First of all, as men, as men, we need to realize our own need and weakness. Verse 17, he says, And he should go before him in the spirit and power of Elias. 
to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. As men and as fathers, if we're going to lead our homes and raise up men and uh, uh, boys to be men and, and girls to be women, we need, we need wisdom and power that is beyond us. You know, they said it was said of John the Baptist that he would go forth in the spirit and power of Elias, not in his own power. His power wasn't of himself. It was, the, it was the power of God. You know, we need to realize that our own need and weakness, the arm of the flesh is of no, of no avail. The wisdom of the world is foolishness with God. What we need is the power of God. And we have to understand that the world is a battleground. It is not a playground. The world is out to destroy your children and your home. It's not a playground. That's the way most people view the world today. It's a place where we go play. Hollywood, professional sports, some of the most lowest, wickedest people in the country. That's our heroes today. You see, our power is to be of God. It's not of ourselves. When uh, Sennacherib invaded Judah in the days of King Hezekiah, Hezekiah said to his people in Second Chronicles 32, verses 7 and 8, Be strong and courageous. Be not afraid nor dismayed. For the king of Assyria... Nor for all the multitude is with him, for there be more with us than with him. With him is the arm of flesh. If you're going to trust in the arm of flesh, you have a right to be fearful for your family. He says, with him is the arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people rest in themselves upon the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. Of course, this requires that we humble ourselves before God and acknowledge our need of Him. I want to look at a couple of passages in James chapter 4. There's, there's two places we'll look at James 4 and then 1 Peter 5. In James 4 and verses 7 through 10, the Bible says, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He shall lift you up. See, we are to humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, acknowledging our need of Him. We need His power. We need His help. We need His wisdom as fathers and as mothers and as sons, and as daughters. First Peter chapter 5, verse uh, 5. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another, be clothed with humility. 
For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour, whom resist, steadfast in the faith, knowing the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that you have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. You see, if we will humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, he will exalt us in due time. You know, sometimes faithfulness or having wisdom in training or raising up children requires sacrifice. Sometimes it's costly. But in due time, God will raise you up. He'll exalt you. He'll exalt you. He'll give you strength, stability, wisdom. You know, too often we're like Nebuchadnezzar. I have built Babylon by my great power. I can do this. Now, we need to have the attitude of Solomon. When Solomon became king, you know, he was trained by his father, David, the king of Israel. That's how David, you know, he's considered the king of Israel. And, and Solomon says that, you know, he, the, concerning the commandments his father taught him in, first, in Proverbs 4, but when, when Solomon came to the throne, you know, he's a grown man. And the Lord appears to him and said, ask what you will. And he said, 1 Kings chapter th- uh, five, or 3 and verses 5 through 12, I'm not going to take time to read it, but he basically what he said is, you know, Lord, you, you, you've made me this king over this great people. And I am but a little child. I know not how to go out or to come in. I need wisdom and understanding from you to govern so great a people. Yeah, when those little babies start coming to the home, I looked at them and said, now what do I do? I began to study the Word of God. And I read book after book after book. And I assure you, I'm not, I was not a perfect parent. But I need help. If we, we, we need to realize our need of the Lord. Secondly, as men, we have to learn to restrain our passions. Notice verse 15. For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord. And it's interesting, these two things go together. And shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. And he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost even from his mother's womb. Now, the word wine here, there's two words here. There's there's wine and there's strong drink. So the word wine would refer to the fruit of the vine, grape juice. 
Strong drink, of course, refers to intoxicating beverages. And John the Baptist was to drink neither. In other words, he was a man that was to restrain his passions. I mean, grape juice was the enjoyable drink of the day. But he was a marked man that was to show restraint and and temperance. If there's something lacking in our society today, I would say it's temperance. It's temperance or restraint. First Corinthians nine twenty five, Paul said, And every man that striveth the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they did to obtain a corruptible crime, but we not corruptible crime. Temperance. Titus two two says the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, in patience. You know, the word temperance really means self control. It's the virtue of one who masters his desire and passions. And in the Bible, as used here, it says, especially his sensual passions. Proverbs twenty five twenty eight says this, He that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. What's the country like without borders? We all know that, don't we? Very plainly. Interesting. You know, those that are trying to take over cities, what is the first thing they do? Put up a border. It's like a country without borders, without laws, without authorities to force those, any law. You know, and the biggest problem that you and I face, men and women, is we just want to do what we feel like doing. We just want to do what we feel like doing. And that's the motto of our world. If it feels good, do it. It must be right. There was an old country song years ago when I listened to country music, you know, where you get your dog, you know, if you back mask, you get your dog back, your truck back, your wife back, you know. Anyway, you know, I listened to country music, you know, and one of those songs was, if loving you is wrong, I don't want to be right. In other words, if it feels good, do it. You owe yourself a break today. That was a McDonald's commercial. This is a lifestyle and the message being promoted by the entertainment world, the romantic novels and everything. It's where emotions control the intellect and the feelings control the will. Describes a person who is unstable, inconsistent, and defeated. If you want success in life, you have to learn as a child of God to be spirit-controlled. You know, this was Paul's biggest enemy. Paul's biggest enemy. His emotions, his feelings. He had them. And by the way, he was used to living out his feelings of hatred for Christians. It was a feeling he had. You know, he would have been what we call today a tyrant. Saul of Tarsus, the tyrant. A controller of people. But Saul, Tarsus, got saved. And he has submitted his feelings to the Spirit of God. 
In Romans chapter 6, 7, he talks about those things. And in and, and Romans 6, verses uh, 11 through 12, he says this, Likewise reckon also ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey in its lust thereof. Don't follow your feelings. Reckon them dead. That's what he's saying. Chapter 7, verse 15 through 25. For that which I do I allow not, for what I would that do I not, but what I hate, that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent to the law that is good. Now then is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For that I know that is in my flesh, that it is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For the will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. So I, my feelings is, I want to do that which is evil, and I don't find in myself that guidance or power to do that which is right. I find it in the Spirit of God that dwells in me. Verse 25, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Your flesh wants to follow your feelings. And if you're saved and you have the Spirit of God in you, He desires for you to follow the Word of God. Dr. Terry Coomer said this, quote, The number one thing I do as a biblical counselor and married speaker is to try to help people move out of a feelings-dominated, emotional-controlled life and into a controlled-by-the-Holy-Spirit, biblical-principled-driven life, unquote. And we need to learn that we will never succeed in life in relationships, until we learn to make decisions and choices based on the truth. And what is right and not what I feel like at the time. You know, the Bible says in Ephesians 6, 1, children obey your parents and Lord, for this is what? Right. Because I feel like it? No. Because it's right. Husbands love your wives because it's right. Why submit to yourselves under your own husband? Because it's right. You're not always going to feel like it. But it's right. I don't always feel like getting ready to preach. Some days I feel like quitting. Do you think Paul always felt like going somewhere to preach, knowing it's probably going to be a riot? You know what Paul said? I die daily. In other words, I crucify my feelings every day and I live doing what is right. See, we, to, we've grown up in a world that's, that's catered to our feelings, giving us what we want. But when we get saved, we're not supposed to do what we want. We've been bought with a price and we're to glorify God in our body and our spirit, which are God's. You know, the biggest lie the devil has ever conceived and, and sold to so-called Christians is that it don't matter what you do on the outside, just as long as your heart's right. That's a lie. Because your body, what you do on the outside, reveals what your heart is. 
You know, our jails are full of people who live doing what they feel like. Many are in financial difficulties because they live doing what they feel like doing. Many have dysfunctional homes, broken homes, with hardships because they did what they felt like. If you live governed by your feelings, welcome to a miserable, guilt-ridden, and defeated world. And that was the world of King Saul, of Ahab, and Saul of Tarsus. But the Lord can give deliverance. It was Paul, formerly Saul, who said in 1 Corinthians 9, 26 and 27, I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my, I keep under my body, I keep under my feelings, and I bring them into subjection, lest that by any means when I preach to others, I myself should get cast away. You know, he was not without direction, he was not without feelings, he just wasn't following his feelings. He was following a more sure word of prophecy. The word of God. It was Paul who said, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And see, therein lies our problem. We have not crucified the old flat, the old man. The old man says, I have my rights. Are you saved? If you're a child of God, God has purchased you with the blood of Christ and you belong to him. You know, Samuel, not Samuel, Eli was the high priest. Eli had two wicked sons that he did not restrain. But you know, Eli had his own problem. In fact, in 1 Samuel 2.29, it said this concerning Eli. First Samuel 2.29, Wherefore, kick ye at my sacrifice and at mine offering, which I have commanded in my habitation. Honor thy sons above me to make yourselves fat with the chiefest of all the offerings of Israel. Do you know what Eli was doing? You know, Eli had an appetite for food. He didn't control his passions. And he took the chiefest of the offerings for himself. You know what his sons did? They didn't just take the chiefest. They took what didn't even belong to the priests. You see, we need to control our passions, whatever they may be, whatever passion it is. Our anger, sensual passions. The Bible says this. Here's the cure. Verse 4, Romans 8, 4, that the righteousness of the law might be filled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Galatians 5, 16. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. If you walk in the Spirit, you will not follow your feelings. My feelings and what I, what I know to be right don't always agree. 
No, let me say that again. My feelings and what I know to be right don't often agree. <laughs> they don't often agree. But if I'm going to obey God and have the blessing of God and the power of God, I need to submit to the Spirit of God. To walk in the flesh brings death. And so, straining our passions, it's, it's a, real, a real serious issue today. Third thing, I must hurry. Uh, we need to require obedience. Notice verse 17 again. He shall go before him in the spirit of power, Elias, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. He was to turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. You know, one of the things that John the Baptist did in his preaching was he required evidence. There were some expectations he had. You remember that many came to be baptized in him in Jordan. The Pharisees also, they came to be baptized in him. And he said, you need to do works meet for repentance. I have some expectations. I want to see some evidence that there's repentance in your life. You know, as fathers, and as men, and even as and mothers, and this really applies to all of us. We ought to have expectations for ourselves, expectations for our children. Just as God has expectations for us. Why? Because He loves us. We have expectations for our children because we love them. We want what's best for them. I mean, we're going to someday send them out into this world that's a battleground that's out to destroy them. And so we need to have expectations to prepare them for that battleground. Genesis 18:19 said it was, Abraham, it was said of Abraham that he would command his children and his household after him. Now I'm sure our liberal friends don't like that passage of scripture. They would say that Abraham was a patriarch. He was authoritative. Yeah. As if that's a disease. But you know, Abraham was so successful in commanding his children after him that he took an adult son to the mountain to offer him. Hey, Isaac wasn't five years old when that took place. And Isaac submitted to Abraham's command. He submitted. Josephus says that Isaac was probably 25 years old at the time of that sacrifice. He was actually 40 when he sent for a bride. You know, Proverbs 22.6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go. When he is old, he should not depart from it. To train up means to exercise, to discipline, to teach and form by practice. You know, we're so good in this country of training dogs and cats and animals and all that. 
and our kids run around like dogs and cats, wild ones. Now, I'm not talking about yours here, but you know what I'm talking about. You know, the Bible still says in Proverbs 13, 24, He that spareth his rod hateth his son, but he that loveth him chasteneth him betimes. Betimes. Proverbs 19, 18, Chasten thy son while there is hope, because there will come a time when there is no hope in chastening. And let not thy soul spare for his crying, you know, the, the psychologist told the child, if it doesn't work, cry, cry again. <laughs> and you know, how many times children will just cry thinking they're going to get out of some chastening. Let not thy soul spare for its crying. Proverbs 22.15 says, Foolishness is bound in the heart of the child, but the rod of correction shall drive it far from him. And the interesting thing is, of course, there's been movements afoot for years to outlaw spanking. And this is a, the, call, this is a website called The Telegraph, June 19th, 2020. So this is just brand new. Smack children more successful later in life, study finds. Isn't that interesting? Ian Jones. Quote, a study found that youngsters smacked up to the age of six did better at school and were more optimistic about their lives than those never hit by their parents. They were also more likely to undertake voluntary work and keener to attend university, experts discovered. These experts are so smart. They're already telling us what God already told us, you know. Um, Marjorie Gunno is a professor of psychology, Calvin College, Grand Rapids, said, Quote, her study showed there was insufficient evidence to deny parents the freedom to determine how their children should be punished. She said, quote, the claims made for not spanking children fail to hold up. They are not consistent with the data. However, she says this, quote, I think spanking as a dangerous tool. But there are times when there is a job big, big enough for a dangerous tool. You don't use it for all your jobs, unquote. And it, the article goes on and says, quote, those who have been smacked up the age of six perform better in almost all positive care categories and no worse in the negatives than those punished, not never punished physically. Well, they're already telling us what God already told us. Proverbs 23, 13, 14 says, you withhold not correction from the child, for if thou beatest him with the rod, he shall not die Thou shalt beat him with rod and shalt deliver his soul from hell. I remember so clearly a little girl we used to pick up for church. She was probably nine, ten years old. Her name was Gracie. She lived with an aunt and uncle, I believe it was, who ran a nursing, uh, assisted living home. And we we're on our way to church one day, and she said, this is what she said. They don't care about us. They let us do whatever we want. You know, Hebrews 12.9 says that we 
Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? You know, there's a very strong assumption here that fathers chasten their sons. It's just the way it is. A father will chasten his children. You see, we are to expect obedience from our children. It is for their good. If they don't learn to respect authority at home, when they get out in the world, they will be part of the anarchy crowd. And we don't need riddling and all that garbage either. What we need is some work. And some discipline. That's all. My dad always said, children don't ever need riddling. It's just somebody didn't have enough to do. So require obedience. Third, and thirdly, we need to, there needs to be regular, uh, fourthly, I'm sorry, regular instruction. Verse 15. For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord. He shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He shall be filled with the Holy Ghost even from his mother's womb. You know, Zachariah and Elizabeth were given specific instructions how to train up this boy who would be what, the forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ, John the Baptist. They gave him specific instructions. And again, our children are going out into the world, which is a battleground, and they need to be given instructions in how to live life in a way that pleases the Lord and is for their own benefit. Solomon, in Proverbs chapter 4, and verses 1 through 4, Solomon said, Hear ye children the instruction of a father, and attend to no understanding, for I give you good doctrine, forsake ye not my law, for I was my father's son, tender and only beloved in the sight of my mother. He taught me also and said unto me, Let thine heart retain my words, keep my commandments and live. If you want to have a good life, if you want to have a life that's pleasing to the Lord, if you want to have a life without remorse and regrets, here's what you do. You keep my commandments. When you wrote Ecclesiastes, The last chapter, he started out by saying this. Remember now thy creator in the days of thy old age. No, he didn't say that. He said in thy youth. While the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them. Young people, you can go out and live doing what you feel like doing. But at the end of your life, you're going to live with the consequences of living, doing what you feel like doing. And then you're going to say, like Solomon said here, when you shall say, I have no pleasure in them. See, the lusts of the flesh never satisfy. They will bring us heartache. Just 
I would encourage you to make some good conversation with old people. They can give you some real insight into what brings joy in your old age. That you ought to do when you're young. You know, we're to bring our children up and nurture and admonish the Lord. That speaks of warnings and instruction. And I don't have time to go into all this, but J. Edgar Hoover said this. He was the former FBI director. And a very good one. He said, quote, today's unchurched tom- child is tomorrow's criminal. Unquote. Isaiah 38, 19 says, The father of the children shall make known thy truth. You know, we need to educate our children into what is right and what is wrong and the consequences of it. We need to instruct them to stand against evil. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 10, he said, Solomon said, My son, when sinners entice thee, consent thou not. Go not with them to shed blood. We must warn them that you reap what you sow. That is a universal law that cannot be avoided. It's going to happen. Proverbs 13.15 says, The way of the transgressor is hard. You see, and as fathers and mothers, fathers in particular, we need to give regular instruction. You know, I want you to think about this. I never thought about this before. I just thought about this yesterday. Do you realize that Solomon came from a dysfunctional family? Yeah, he did. How many wives did David have? Children by different wives. I mean, we think things are a mess today. I mean, you go visit knocking on somebody's door, and you know, there's a couple of little kids coming. Oh, that's hers, and that's his, and that's... Uh, you know, you know how it is. But Solomon came from a dysfunctional family. There are no perfect families. Some may appear that way, but there are not. But you know, God can give us grace. God can give us grace and wisdom if we'll realize our need of Him. Of course, the most basic need is do we know the Lord Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior? And then Are we submitted to Him? Are we submitted to the Spirit of God, allowing the Word of God and the Spirit of God to lead us and not being controlled by our feelings, but by the principles of Scripture? Basing our decisions, our instruction, on the truths of the Word of God. That's tried and proven to work.
men, young men, we have a privilege. We have an opportunity. The world is a battleground. You're entering that battleground. Some of you are in that battleground. If you want to be successful in waging the battles of life, you must receive the instruction that God gives us from his word.